You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to this special bonus edition of Sweden in Focus, where we hear more from our recent guest Anna Ekström, the former Social Democrat Education Minister who now chairs the ABF Study Association in Stockholm and is also involved more broadly in several parts of the so-called fault-building educational movement. We talked to her about this particularly Nordic movement, how immigrants can benefit from it, recent budget cuts, and we also chatted more broadly about challenges faced by the Swedish school system, such as segregation and a grading system that's open to abuse. I'm your host, Paul Omani, and Asking the Questions with me were podcast regulars Becky Waterton and James Savage. So you told us a little bit about what folk building is. If we look at another couple of terms that you work with, you work with Studieförbund or study associations. Can you tell us what those are and what your role is there? I have the privilege to be a chairperson of ABF Stockholm, which is the Workers' Study Association. I think this is the largest study association in, in Sweden. It dates back to 1916 and its roots are not in government but the roots are in the sort of in the popular movements creating these study associations and originally we worked very hard on making sure that people get together that they can I think the study associations are mostly known for people who pursue a hobby but uh, they are just as important when it comes to learning Swedish for immigrants. We started Swedish for immigrants in the 1960s actually in, in ABF and they are very important in order to reach people who have a quite a long way to walk before they can enter the labor market either because they lack the formal education, the upper secondary degree, which is almost mandatory to get a job in Sweden, or because they sort of lack the skills. So we have expanded into also making sure that we can give courses for people to be able to apply for adult education or to a folk high school. And we also have lots of projects to to make an outreach to meet, for instance, women with an immigrant background and make sure that they get the information and the tools they need to move into the education or to the labor market. The people who benefit most from the study associations are elderly. We supply lots of the courses, the meeting places, the actual interesting things to do for especially for for lonely elderly people. Another very important group of persons that where the study associations are vital are people with disabilities. For instance, if you have an intellectual disability, it's very, very difficult to enter into the education system. But we can provide courses that not only give sort of a happy leisure time, but also makes you develop. 
also the third very important thing I would say is the cultural life in Sweden outside the big cities. For instance, if you are in a smaller town, not a university town, but a smaller town, if you, for instance, have a lecture with an author presenting his or her new book, if you have a choir, if you have a course to make sure that you learn to get the permit to shoot animals, very, very important in the <laughs> outside the big cities, all these are, are provided by study associations. And I talked about the labor associations. There is a vast variety. We have study associations grounded by free churches, by the movement to stay sober, by the women's movement, the liberal movement. So there's a vast variety of study associations. So just to just to clarify, so you, ABF, the one that you run, that's, that's connected tangentially to the Social Democratic Party and, and the trade union, so they're linked to the Social Democratic Party. Yes, and also the left party. Right. But it's a, it's an open church. Uh, you have We have lots of, of organizations we work together with very many of them with, for instance, the immigrants coming from Chile and after the terrible coup by Pinochet. This was very much done together with ABF. But we have also other big study associations with a more liberal or a more religious basis, for instance. And our colleague Richard wrote an article about RBF this week. He absolutely loves it and has sort of used it to help his integration. And we'll link to that article in the notes. We're going to talk about the budget in a moment and how it relates to study associations. But can I just ask you as well about another area you work with, which is Folkhag School or, or Folk High School sort of adult education centres. Can you explain what those are? It's almost impossible to explain because this is, I think this is probably the most Nordic thing you could ever imagine. These are high schools, so they are sort of meant for people who either need a degree from upper secondary education. We have a big problem in Sweden, as we have in many other countries, with lots of young people not reaching all the targets you need to reach in the ordinary school. And they leave school without a full exam. And they have big, big problems, not only going into further education, but also entering the labor market. And the folk high schools, since the beginning of the 20th century, have always given these sort of basic courses, giving people what they need in order to get an exam. And this has a long, long tradition in Sweden. And for me, it's a miracle. I've tried for many years now to understand what it is they do. But actually, what happens is that young people who have spent 12 years in the primary and, and upper secondary education training very hard on handling how to fail. Suddenly, when they come to the folk high school, where there is a, a boarding possibility, so you live at the school, you're seen as an individual, not just as a part of a big group. Suddenly, with this more inclusive pedagogical environment, you start liking schools. You start learning how it is to manage school and how to succeed in school. And you get the possibility to move on to the labor market and, or to the uh, mm. education system, or even to move on as a responsible citizen, taking care of society. Because these folk high schools mean a lot also to making sure that people can straighten their shoulders and feel that they are part of society, not a failure, but part of a society. And that's one part of the folk high school. The other part is the cultural environment. Lots of... Uh, courses on uh, arts, on singing, 
in order to en- enter the Swedish um, university for to become an artist, almost everyone goes to a folk high school at first to get their portfolio and to develop their skills. This mix of people with a rather tough background and people with very high ambitions on the cultural side is wonderful <laughs> for both. I actually went to a folk high school in Denmark. Uh, it was only for a summer, but this was when I was studying Danish. And I remember we did like courses on Danish design, philosophy, like everything. It was a language course, but all of this cultural stuff as well that just gave you such a, an insight into Denmark. And uh, they are really special places. Yeah. And very, very Nordic. And as I see it, the study associations and the folk high schools are extremely important for the Nordic high levels of trust in the Nordic societies. Mm-hmm. Together with the, our open libraries and, and the way we have of public funding of cultural life, we manage to, to get the way of get people getting together and being part of society, which is, I think, makes miracles for, for the high level mm-hmm. of public trust, which is the Nordic gold. I mean, it's. I think if if you live in Sweden for any length of time and you and you and you chat with Swedes, you'll very quickly find that you know someone who didn't really do very well at school, and because they got into the wrong crowd or they just weren't interested, and then you know perhaps in their early twenties went to Komvux, which is part of this movement as well, right? And they just and through that they got their qualifications, and it's 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 you know and, and now are working in really responsible jobs, sometimes even really high-paid jobs. Well, that's true. Convux uh, formally is not part of the folk-building movement, but very often, for instance, ABF Stockholm, we also make courses in Convux and uh, try to use the pedagogics from, from the folk high school movement. And for instance, our former Minister for Justice, Thomas Bodström, he always talks about how Convux was his way to come back to society. Mm. And also, we are right now in the building of the Internet Foundation in Sweden, where the former head, uh, who was one of the holders of the key to the Internet and has a gold medal from the Swedish Engineering Association, she only got into the technical university thanks to Convux. So this is really part of making an inclusive society and making sure that talents and hard work are not wasted. And as you said, these study associations and folk high schools, they're a very Nordic thing. And I think it can take a while, speaking from my own experience, before you sort of realize what they are. Are they accessible to people who are new to Sweden? And is it something that immigrants should be exploring? Immigrants should absolutely explore them and they are very accessible. Both folk high schools and and study associations are enormously important for many immigrants. Take, for instance, all the Ukrainians coming to Sweden last year. They were not allowed to have SFE from the start. And instead, the study associations and also the folk high schools opened their gates and welcomed them and gave them Swedish from day one, which is a special program. Not SFE, but better than nothing. And also a way of of sort of making, just as we heard Becky say, a way of, of getting to know the new society, getting to know your new countrymen. For instance, more than 10% of all the Ukrainians coming to Stockholm have applied to come to ABF Stockholm. So we are extremely important. And also in the big migration wave in 2015, it was the study associations and the Folkhälsoet that really made it possible for Sweden to handle this very difficult situation. Let's talk about the government now. So in its most recent budget, the government cut funding for study associations by 250 million kroner in this year's budget. Why did they do that and what effect is it going to have? 
According to the rhetoric, they did this because they wanted to focus less on study associations and more on formal adult education. For me, this is an unnecessary and wrongful polarization between two forms of education that are both of them very much needed in the Swedish society. I'm very concerned about this because all the parties inside the government have in the long history been in favor of the study associations. They are actually, most of them, owners of study associations. And the study associations has for a long time had had a very big support in the Swedish parliament. Now, the big thing that has happened is the entry of the Sweden Democrats, mm. who in their programs and in their proposals to get to parliament have been very negative towards study associations. So I think this is a way of... of um, it's part of the, the TIDE agreement, the agreement between the Sweden Democrats and the current government to be tough on study associations. And I think that's the, re- the real reason. Do you think this puts their long-term future in threat? I think uh, I'm very much afraid that we will see uh, one or two or maybe more study associations in big, big problems, maybe even uh, have to close down their their what they're doing. And since uh, the budget last year when it comes to folk high schools was also sort of uh, substantially lower, we have big problems now in many folk high schools with um, uh, lots of uh, teachers being laid off and lots of courses being closed down. They've increased the funding in the latest budget for Folkhögskolor by 100 million kronor. Is that a reaction to these layoffs or why have they done this? I think it's a reaction to the very big problems that because the minus in the former budget was 500 million Swedish crowns. And in this budget, there was a plus 100. Mm. But still, uh, in the budget of the Folk High School, there's still a minus 400 million and uh, also a very big inflation, which the inflation is actually equivalent to the 100 million crowns. So we have a very tough situation in many folk high schools. And I, I don't feel sorry for the folk high schools, but I do feel sorry for all the Swedes and others who can't make use of this very efficient and good form of education. And I do feel very sorry for society and the employers who really need desperately to to hire assistant nurses. And right now we are cutting down on the courses for assistant nurses inside the folk high school system, which is, I think, really sad. Can I just ask again about the, the Sweden Democrats? You mentioned that they're opposed to study associations and this is sort of a fault line running through Swedish politics. It's something that's in their in their policy documents. Why are they so opposed on an ideological level? Well, I think it's up to others to answer that question. For me, it's an enigma because the Sweden Democrats, usually in their rhetoric, try to present themselves as part of the old time Sweden. They like to go back to traditions. And I can't think of anything more Swedish than a Swedish folk high school or a Swedish study association. So for me, it's an enigma. Wouldn't they argue that this, the social democrats have, in a sense, rigged the system? I think that's that's what they say, you know, that these are organizations that get a lot of funding from the state and they're connected to the social democrat movement. Well, if you think that the Medborgarskolan, which was funded by the moderate party yeah. in Sweden, or the or the Studies Association uh, funded by the religious free churches 
are part of a secret social democratic um, conspiracy, I think you will have um, you have an upward an, an uphill to to have that argument, and that's one of the big problems is that in the public debate, civil society has uh, suddenly been described as part of a social democratic movement, which is simply not true. Civil society in Sweden is the Red Cross. It's the uh, free church. It's the choir that you attend. All these sort of enormously important activities that are done by people themselves should, of course, they have been funded by government for Mm. many, many years. And now suddenly when the funding is cut down, lots of people will be left with more boring and uh, colder society, especially outside the big cities. But the fact that you and and the Medborio Skolan have this connection to political parties, what what effect does that actually have on your work? Is it necessary? Would it be would it be helpful if you didn't have that connection to political parties? Well, since we've been funded by these political movements, it's a very strange question. The ABF was funded by uh, Richard Sandler, who was uh, finance minister in the early social democratic. This, this is sort of part of a popular movement. And uh, I think the question it gives you the impression that the civil society exists on the conditions set by the government. In a way, this is true. This is a society funded, we follow the rules. But actually, it's not true. Because we have a democracy in Sweden, thanks to the civil society, thanks to the popular movements. It was they, it was the popular movements with roots in folk high schools and and study associations that sort of had the big rallies in order to make sure that we have female, that women can vote and that voting is not according to your income, but according to your person. The government has announced that they will no longer fund Swedish from day one from asylum seekers. Can you explain how you reacted when you heard that funding would be cut? I think it's a good thing that the government decided to open up Swedish for immigrants also to Ukrainians. So I think it's a good thing to shift from Swedish from day one to SFE, because SFE has a higher quality and that was a right decision. But I do think it's a bit pity to totally cut down on Swedish from day one. There's still a need for that. There are still many people living in Sweden who really need to learn better Swedish in order to make sure that they can enter into adult education, for instance. And there's also a big problem with Swedish from day one with the funding being not adequate enough. The funding is too small from government to make sure that every Ukrainian will have the possibility to go to SFE. So unfortunately, I think there will still be a need for Swedish from day one. So if we can go back to your time as education minister and talk more broadly about the Swedish education system. One thing we've touched on several times before in this podcast is that school segregation has become a huge problem in Sweden. If you could go back in time, are there things you would have done differently as head of Skolverket or as education minister to combat segregation? Well, I do agree that segregation is a big problem and a growing problem. And to be a bit personal, when I started as head of the Skolverket, that's one of the things I learned very quickly, that the Swedish school market system is a driver for segregation. Mm. I hadn't fully realized this uh, before I entered the Skolverket and no. learned uh, and read all the studies. And especially as I went abroad and met uh, colleagues from other countries who were simply amazed 
when they heard about the school market system in Let's Sweden. Let's just explain the school market. Here we're talking about these free schools that are financed with taxpayers' money but are operated privately and can and can make profits as well. Yeah, the school market system is as it as we have done it in Sweden in the 1990s. The pillars are the voucher system where yeah. every child sort of has a comes with a voucher and can choose between using this voucher with a free school or a municipal school and that's one pillar. The other pillar is that uh, there is a very uh, sort of lax rules on et- establishment of free schools. The free schools themselves can decide whether, to a large extent where they want to establish. Mm. The third pillar is that the free schools themselves can establish their rules for application, who should be accepted to enter this school. The fourth is um, the fact that there's public money coming into the schools. We are, have a uh, special rule saying that we should have no, uh, parents should not pay anything for education. And the fifth is that uh, in this establishment, we can have a, a company owned by private equity in Canada or Luxembourg or Cayman Islands using the profits the way they want. The defenders of this system would say that, it, look, it's given people a lot more freedom to choose which schools they want to go to. They would say that for perhaps for amb- ambitious kids in, in segregated parts of Stockholm or Malmö, it's enabled them to find schools outside of their area to mix with Swedish kids, along with the, 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 the introduction of this, this system of publicly funded private schools. You had the, the, op- the opportunity for children also to choose their own schools freely, which meant that theoretically, at least, if you live in a segregated area, you can go to school in another area. Have there been some advantages to the system? Well, I would say that these uh, arguments are exactly the reason why I myself thought before I came and, and learned about all the statistics that the free school, the, the way we organized our school markets would rather increase integration in schools. That was my former belief. Unfortunately, the statistics talk completely against what you're saying. And the statistics show that instead of taking down segregation, which is already there because we have a housing segregation, instead of, of diminishing that, the way we organize our school market adds to the housing segregation. But you're right that the fact that there are free schools to choose from I think myself that that's a positive side of of, um, the Swedish school system. But to be very honest, in all other countries, there are also free schools. And these free schools in Denmark or in Norway or in all other countries, they can exist and uh, give a very good education without these uh, sort of voucher systems that we have installed and without the possibility to use taxpayers' money to make a profit. So you would, in this case, keep the free schools, but reform how they work and, and, and absolutely reduce or, or, or what eliminate their opportunity to make a profit? Personally, I would like to eliminate the possibility to use profits the way you, you want to. And I would like to reform the way we have establishment of free schools. I would like to reform the voucher uh, system. I would like to reform the way you handle applications. All these, uh, with the reforms on all these pillars, you could have a system where you still have uh, access to free schools, but you have a much more equitable system, which makes sure not only that all children get a good education, but also that all children get an education where they also get to know children from other backgrounds. That's one of the big negative sides of this segregation that students in in the Swedish school system nowadays tend to grow up in different bubbles. Some of them go to schools where all children have Swedish-speaking parents, 
while others go to schools where Swedish is not spoken in uh, it's spoken in the lessons but not in the playground which is of course extremely bad for both Swedish speaking and non-Swedish speaking children. There's been a lot of criticism from within your party of this system but in the eight years you were in power you didn't do that much to change how the free school system works. Why was that? Actually on all these pillars that I talked about I made sure that we had very good legislation presented to parliament on all these issues, including to abolish um, or or make it more difficult to, to have a profit. But unfortunately, parliament voted against all these legislation. But if the current government want to do something about this, they only have to open the drawers because the legislation, the proposed legislation is still there. And it's perfectly possible to have it through parliament in, in no time at all. I'd just like to bring in another aspect of something that's very current in the discussion in Sweden, in, in the news in Sweden right now, which is gang crime. We've obviously had an explosion of, of gang crime recently, but but also it's been quite prevalent over the last few years. And last year, 18,000 pupils left school without the grades needed to go to gymnasium. Do you see a link between these two phenomena? And looking back, can you see anything within the school system you could have done differently or that could have been done differently to prevent this from happening? I think the link is evident. To have grades enough to pass on to either to upper secondary gymnasium or to from upper secondary to the labour market are absolutely essential. And if you look at all the young criminals, you will see one thing that links them, and that is the lack of, of um, grades enough to go through society. We did a lot in order to make sure that the most deprived schools got better funding and we did lots of lots of programs in order to make sure that we could increase have better quality in teaching for instance one of the things we worked hard with both was to make sure that we could use pedagogical means to make sure that if you don't have the Swedish language good enough this is a problem when it comes to speaking Swedish but it's a problem in all the subjects how can you learn physics if you don't understand the word uh, resistance how can you learn um, history if you don't understand the the terms needed in order to, to to read a historic text so we worked very very hard and the good thing with this was that it made the swedish speaking children's grades grades better too because they also needed this um, language oriented programs but of course we could have done more of course and and when i see the cuts being made now in in the swedish school system because of lack of funding, I look at myself and think, well, we increased the funding every year when I was a minister, but we could have increased more. So I'm self-critical. Do you think there's also an issue with gender performance in Swedish schools? You've got boys tending to perform less well in schools. Um, there's also, if you look at gang crime, it's driven by boys. Do we have a problem with boys? And if so, what might be the reasons for that? And what could the school system do to to counteract that? Well, it's a very interesting question. Actually, boys in Sweden and all over the world, according to research, have performed worse than girls. As long as we know, 
we, the first uh, evidence we have is in the Swedish registers where uh, the priests went out to interrogate um, young men and young women in the countryside in Sweden. In the, in, actually, as, as, as far back as the 16th century, we have registers where the priests complained that the girls were better than the boys in, in reading Luther's catechies. So, <laughs> and, and if you look at, for instance, there's a big research done in, in the Anglo-Saxon countries And this is a phenomenon that, and and the phenomenon has its roots in, I would say, two or three big things. The first is that the average boy starting school is uh, not as mature as the average girl. So the average boy from the beginning, there is a risk that he enters into school and failing and getting the identity of a, a person who is not good in school and there's no use for me to to try. But the other aspect is that boys very often are met uh, with an expectations not to perform as well as girls. And actually, if you study children's literature, this is evident. What is a popular girl in a story? It's Hermione. It's, Hermi- it's I was Hermione, going to say Hermione Granger st- from studying, Harry Potter. Studying very hard until she gets almost sick from it. And almost saving the world. But when the world should be saved, who comes in and saves it with pure talent? Harry Potter. So this is actually something that is in our culture. So we need to make sure that we treat boys and girls much more equally. And meet young boys with loving but high expectations from early on in the school system. If you use a Swedish word, this also flu mit answer. <laughs> but I think it's it's, uh, it's it's not it's a very old problem, but it's very important, and it's become even more important with the recent uh, rise in gang crimes in Sweden. You know, the crime rate in Sweden has gone down rather than up for many years, but at the same time, the gang crimes and the shootings and the explosions are rising to a level that is very very worrying. Yeah, and and it's being driven by very, very young people and very young boys. Very young boys. With the, I would say that everyone agrees that it's also a matter of what gives you a high status in uh, among in the group. For girls, it's still high, could still be high grades, but for boys to get to get high status, even in this uh, sort of violent environment, unfortunately, not high grades. What do we do? We work harder to meet to make sure that. Uh, Schools in deprived areas get the funding they need, but also the teachers that are the most experienced teachers should, of course, work in in the school with highest needs. And when I go to schools in deprived areas and meet the teachers there, I very often meet extremely experienced and and very active and uh, teachers with a high level of engagement. But we need to do more. And what these children need is not less school; it's more school ordinary school, good lessons prepared by teachers with the resources they need. Do they need a different kind of school? I think no. I think we need the kinds of schools we already have, but they should have much better resources in order to meet the high expectations. And if you look at the Stockholm environment we have made for, and this I could say that it was done by the former leadership in the Stockholm, led by the liberals. and with the social democratic leadership we have tried to sort of match this and continue this hard work because one of the big problems is also that in order to make sure that you have a well functioning school you need continuity so 
build on the good work being done, take away the bad things, but not completely reform the school system all the time. What about, what about the issue of discipline? I mean, confiscating children's mobile phones, putting them in detention, because Swedish schools have had this reputation um, of being quite soft on discipline. I mean, by an international standards, they are quite soft on discipline. It's worked for Sweden for many, many decades. Do we need to revisit that? And have we been revisiting that? It depends on what what you mean by discipline. For me, it's completely natural that the teacher should be the leader in the classroom and the one deciding how the lesson should be uh, in charge of the lesson. Uh, But I don't see a need for Swedish children to be afraid of their teachers or subdued. I think it's a positive and good thing with the Swedish school system is that There is a creativity that children can be themselves. On mobile phones, I think it's perfectly evident that mobile phones should not be present during the lessons. I'm 64 years old now, and for me, it's almost impossible to not look into the mobile phone. Uh, for, mm. for a teenager, it's even more impossible. I think it's, uh, for pedagogical reasons, evident that they should be locked away. And actually, as, uh, as, um, uh, when I was minister, we introduced that legislation in the Swedish uh, school. So there is a ban on mobile phones during the lessons now. There was a debate article in Dagens Nyheter a few days ago written by the principal of a school in in the UK who believed that Sweden gives too much power to the students in its educational system. And she felt that, you know, the status of teachers needed to be elevated and, yeah, children to have have less sort of power in the classroom setting. What do you think about that? That depends what you mean by power in the classroom. I think to have for for children from an early age to train in taking responsibility for the school is a very good thing. And we have in the Swedish legislation a rule saying that children should have the option to have a say. I think this is part of what you learn at school. Mm. You learn also to take responsibility. You learn to take part in a student's association from very early on. You learn how to handle a protocol and how to attend a meeting and telling the headmaster and the teachers what the students want, even from a very young age. I think it's a very positive thing and I can see as as long as the children don't have the last word and, and are not allowed to run the school, I think this is a positive thing. The big problem with teacher authority is rather that the market, according to me at least, that the market-oriented system has a potential to to make the teachers servants and the pupils and the, and the parents customers demanding the customer rights. Because you mean because the schools are competing for pupils to come there and so, and, and as they have a choice, then the teachers have to work to sort of market the school and attract Exactly. People. That's the foundation of the, since the 1990s, this has been sort of a, an important part of of. Uh, why we have a market-oriented system. In the 1990s, politicians introducing this school market, they believed that with a market orientation, with competition between schools, the competition would be on the merit of quality. But unfortunately, we see rather a competition where parents, where schools compete with giving generous grades instead of giving really good education. Which takes me to another point. I think for a lot of people coming from other school systems, you look at the Swedish system and you say, okay, so the the grades that pupils leave with are decided by their own teachers. How is that a fair system? Shouldn't Swedish schools have external examiners like in many other countries? It's a very good question. And um, 
Actually, we have had this system with teachers deciding the grades since the 1960s. If you look at the evidence, you will find that uh, we have, beside this, we have introduced the high högskoleprov where you can make a test in order to enter university and uh, get sort of you can get grades so to speak from that too and then then that's decided by external that is decided that, that by is, external examiners that is an external examination it's done very much computer computerized it's digitalized it, it's not the kind of it's not exactly the uh, student the final exams that you have in other countries but it's not not too far away from it and when the researchers look into the what happens to the students going in university with what what are the effects of the grading system done by the teachers compared to the grading system done by the compute the, the final exams in the, in the Högskoleprove. Uh, actually the teachers grades have a much better not much better but a better prediction of of how well the students do in in university so so far this has worked and the idea is of course that a teacher who follows a young person day after day after day for many years has a much better possibility to set a, a, a correct grade compared to a test done in a few hours. But I'm very nervous about the effects of the school market where this, the possibilities for the teachers to set correct grades are constantly influenced. And we have seen lots of, of um, evidence showing that uh, headmasters put pressure on teachers, even breaking a law and sort of changing the grades set by the teachers in order to meet demands from parents. I think this system has served us well, but the effects of the school market are very high. So I'm, I'm nervous about the if, if we can keep this. I mean, I think the Stockholm School of Economics um, came out recently and said that it no longer trusts the grades that they receive um, from students from their schools and they're going to require them to take a separate entrance exam. Doesn't this sort of undermine trust in the whole education system and maybe indicate that it's time for reform? Yes, and this, the Stockholm School of Education is a uh, is a free academy, so they, they can use the, the applications forms they, they want. And we also have a possibility for all universities in Sweden to, to have... Uh, their own ways of applications into a very high extent. So my problem is that this grading system has served us well for many, many years, but now it's being undermined. And, and when you have no trust in it, it's very difficult to uphold it. And with all these evidence coming up, uh, the pressure on teachers to give generous grades is of course bigger with every scandal because then the parents and the teachers and the colleagues say, look, everyone else is doing it, so why shouldn't we? And the teacher who sets a grade that is a bit too high has very little, what problems does he or she get? Very little, but the teacher who keeps on uh, high, a high ethical standard and takes his or her responsibility for the school system and for Sweden and for the students he or she gets a lot of negative things coming back from the headmaster, from parents. And even if uh, a school has strict grades, there is a risk that they lose children going to more generous grade setting schools. Mm. So they could even risk their own jobs. If the um, Social Democrats win the next election, would you be interested in being education minister again? I would love it, but I would be very old by then. <laughs> I'm I'm no. pretty sure that the, this government will hold on for four years. So 
I think the the next possible time will be 2026 and I will be closer to 70 than 60 then. But uh, I would never say no to a social democratic prime minister. I I have said no to a moderate prime minister once, (laughs) but I wouldn't say no to a social democratic prime (laughs) minister. Because nobody really knew where you stood politically, right? They were wondering where you... Well, I I think this was in, in the... 2006 when Fredrik Reinfeldt was elected and he was very much aware that I was a social democrat. But I think that he really tried to broaden his base and to make sure that the moderate, he wanted the moderate party to be broader. Mm. So I, I, I think that that's why he asked me. I, I, not did, not of ignorance. You? What did he ask you? What was the offer? He offered me to become Minister for Labour and... Uh, Uh, With this offer came also an obligation, of course, to join the moderate party. And I was I was uh, flattered, but at the same time unhappy. And I came home to my husband and say, typical, the only prime minister who offers me a a job as a minister (laughs) is from the wrong party. That takes us to the end of this bonus episode of Sweden in Focus. If you know somebody who might like this episode or the podcast in general, please pass it along. Our guest today was Anna Ekström. Our regular panellists were Becky Waterton and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paula Mahoney and we'll be back again on Saturday. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.